Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing in Acts chapter 17, I'll be reading from verse 16, and I'll also, um, for the first time, include the initial section of chapter 18. I'll read through until verse 6 of chapter 18. Our verses of focus today are verses 22 through 34, where Paul stands in the midst of the Areopagus and gives his defense of the Christian faith. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. This is the second time we've looked at this particular text, Paul's defense of the faith there in Athens before the council, the Areopagus council. We looked at the foundations of biblical apologetics last week. And we'll review that briefly this week. And then we'll look at these foundations applied. We'll see Paul's courageous and gentle response to their challenging the gospel. We'll see him defining the antithesis and pointing out the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We'll see him then go on to expand the antithesis or to push the antithesis, not backing off, not backing down, not shrinking back. People tend to begin to squirm when you define for them the world in which they're dwelling. He does not shrink down. He expands the antithesis. And then from there, he goes on to call for repentance. The complete and total unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ and the total renunciation of the kingdom of darkness. And in that, he gives them reasons for repentance. And we see also... Finally, the response to biblical apologetics, some mock, some delay, some believe and follow him immediately, follow along with Paul following Christ immediately. And along the way and at the end, some questions as usual to examine ourselves, to know God more, to love him more and to obey him more fully. So first of all, this will be the third time now we've been through this text in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it's hopefully becoming fairly familiar to you now uh, because it is the pivotal text on apologetics. Paul's interaction with the philosophers of Athens and his defense before the Areopagus, that council, serve for us as the pivotal text on the application, or as a pivotal text, there are other good ones, on the application of biblical apologetics. It's good for us to consider one key defining text on apologetics as we move into today's text and look at the way Paul 
engaged with these philosophers at this council. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, Peter writes, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So our word for apologetics, which means to give a defense, comes here from this Greek word. It is a verbal defense. It is to speak in defense of a position. It is a reasoned and it is also a reasoned statement. It is an argument that has foundations and conclusions, and it is a response to being challenged. So, first of all, we learn from this text that as Christians who proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as his ambassadors, bringing his terms to the world, we will need courage because threats will come against us, and these threats will tempt us to turn away from God to not go into evangelism, to not continue with apologetics when we are confronted. And so we need to see that these threats will tempt us to abandon defending the faith. We may wonder what might happen to our position in the community. We may wonder what may happen with our job or with our revenues. These types of things may come to mind. We may wonder if we could be imprisoned as we will pray for some in Tennessee. Uh, this very day. Uh, We may be wondering in our minds what kind of threats could harm us. And as you can imagine, these things can cause us to shrink back and close our mouths. Next, what is it that will help us to deal with these threats? Only one thing, that our heart is wholly given over to God. Sanctified is what the text says, that he is set apart in our hearts and that we love him and we worship him and our fealty is to him and him alone. And apologetics we see also requires readiness. And this is both spiritual and mental preparation. Paul had to be prepared for what he faced and we do also need to be prepared. By way of review, we'll look at these quickly, these six key points of biblical apologetics from an intellectual and Uh, rational perspective. Of course, there's the spiritual preparation that we've already mentioned, God being sanctified and set apart in our hearts. First of all, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that there are two kingdoms in this world and two kingdoms only, and that these kingdoms are at war with one another and they have irreconcilable differences There can be no negotiation. There can be no truce. And neither side will ever give up until total victory has been achieved. The devil is devoted to through deception and through slander and through all means of lawlessness to bringing a complete and total end to humanity on the earth. The devil's goal is to stand on a destroyed world and shake his fist in God's face and say they're all dead. All who are not 
with Christ are against him. He tells us that all those who are deceived walk in this kingdom of darkness. And as his ambassadors, we are to bring forth the kingdom of light and life and truth and salvation and peace with God, deliverance from his wrath and to show them the beauty of God's kingdom. So as we understand this and move into our conversations, our apologetic conversations, we have to understand that this person who's not a believer is speaking from the foundations of darkness, even though they might be a good neighbor, dressed nicely, and one that you would prefer to interact with compared to maybe perhaps many Christians that you know. Nevertheless, their worldview is a worldview of darkness and death and they are trapped by the devil to do his will. Whereas the kingdom of God, and it's, it's utterly irrational. It's based on self-authority. It's based on autonomy. And you will be able to point out the internal contradictions. Conversely, God's kingdom is based on his revealed word. His revelatory authority is where we begin. And it leads to an internally consistent worldview that is always rational And when applied in real life, it leads to beauty and goodness and glory and the establishment and advancement of true civilization in the world. From this perspective, we call this individual to depart from the kingdom of darkness and to come into the kingdom of God. There is no truce. There is no softening the utter failure of the world in which they are live and dwell and that their minds have been overthrown and that they've been taken utterly captive by the devil to do his will. And the only, it's the only rational response is to call for them to repent, which means to admit they were wrong, admit that their minds have been overthrown and to come into Christ's kingdom and to submit to him totally and fully. We must see that even though there, we can soften the correction, as we will see, because of their ignorance, because of their unbelief, nevertheless, they are in a position of culpable ignorance. They are without excuse. So we can call them to repentance, and it is fully logical and rational for us to do so. They are in a place of culpable ignorance, just like you and me before we came to Christ. The importance here as we call for repentance and understand that they are culpable is that we are going to be pushing the antithesis as we speak with them further and further with every opportunity we get showing them that there is no nearness between the worldviews that are in conflict at this moment that are clashing in this conversation. While we're both human and we share the commonality of being the offspring of God, while we're neighbors with one another, The two worldviews are infinitely removed from one another. And and so we press that antithesis through the words that we speak in kindness, in courtesy, and in tenderness to help them see the plight that they are in. And from that spot, it is the only reasonable and loving thing to do is to call them to repent and to repent now. To repent immediately. Immediately. That's what we're going to see Paul doing as he goes through his apologetic. 
So apologetics is going to be prepared in this fashion, understanding the cosmic battle that's in play. It will be responsive as well, as we see from 1 Peter 3. It will be generous to all, meaning that we will share the gospel and, and take the time to be an apologist to all people. Paul did it in the marketplace to those who were unnamed. He did it to the, this named council, this august body. He did not show favoritism. He demonstrated a life of hopefulness and faithfulness. And he demonstrated supreme rationality and an invincibly, uh, an invincible logical argument. And it's always the, the case. And we'll see that you have to know scriptures. Paul uh, alludes to uh, dozens of scriptures as he goes through this section and teaches these people, proclaims to them the reality of who God is. But we'll see that he does so humbly, knowing that he is forgiven, and in an upright way, knowing that he's acting towards them as a good man in the way that he's behaving towards them at that moment. So biblical apologetics is sanctified. That is, our hearts are given over to the love of God first. Courageous, prepared, responsive, generous, hopeful, faithful, rational, humble, forgiven, upright. Believers, giving a defense for our faith. This is worth meditating upon. Uh, a beautiful picture given to us of who we are called to be. And uh, I think we all would agree, don't we, that we have room for growth as we consider these things. The text from 1 Peter 3 and from today's text lays out also for us some results that we should expect. There will be those who revile biblical apologists, and if they do that, they will ultimately be ashamed before God. And we will, um, as biblical evangelists and apologists, if God wills it, we should expect that we may suffer for being his ambassadors and bringing his terms of peace to this world. But we must remember that it is better to suffer as a biblical apologist that is doing good than as one who does evil. We will be tempted to be provoked towards those who mistreat us, who revile us and who mock us. And if we are provoked, we may do evil and be punished for it. And it is not good to be punished for doing evil. Um, we need to remember, that I'll be using words like maxim and presupposition. It's really important. This is a basic belief that cannot be proven. It is held based upon faith, not based upon proof. It cannot be proven logically. And every human holds these beliefs and Paul speaks of this when he says to them, I notice that you're very religious. There are a number of unprovable beliefs that they hold to. In addition, it is very important for us as biblical apologists to remember this overarching reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood. When Paul spoke to the council there, he was not Battling, He knew he was not battling against these individuals, even the ones who had already mocked him as a babbler and a seed picker. He knew that his battle was against unseen enemies in the spiritual realm. He knew that this city was infested and overtaken by demonic forces of deception. Ephesians 6.12, 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I haven't said this before today in regards to being a biblical apologist. How do we wrestle against these spiritual forces? We wrestle with them primarily in prayer. Primarily in prayer. Yes, in being an ambassador of truth, for sure. But this is another form of preparation, is to be in prayer against demonic forces and asking the Lord God to plow in the hearts of our hearers. I can't help but think that as Paul was walking to be in this council, to be in their midst, that he was sending up this kind of quick prayer to God. Oh God, plow their hearts. Oh God, shine into their souls. Oh God, drive away demonic forces. Oh God, bring your angels here for this moment. Oh Lord, enlighten their minds to be fully delivered from darkness. Prayer is a part of being spiritually prepared, brothers and sisters, to be a biblical apologist. And also our courtesy and our meekness, which we've already talked about in apologetics. You can see how it comes forth from remembering that this person whom we're talking to, as Paul puts it, quoting their poets, is the offspring of God. Every human being is an offspring of God, made by him and made in his image. And thus the basic principles of the gospel itself that we're preaching to this unbeliever demands a certain way of engaging with them, a certain way of treating them. We can undermine, we do undermine the message itself when we fail to be gentle and humble and courteous in how we engage with those who challenge the gospel. Now our speech will be combat speech against the ideas of death. Okay, we need to clearly define the darkness and the ugliness that has enslaved their minds. We need to help them see the barbed wire chains that hold them fast and the ugliness of these ideas in this world and the devil himself while treating them with respect and courtesy. So important. So first we see Paul's courageous and gentle response in in the first section. The text says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens. So we see Paul revealing his Christ-like character in Paul's boldness and his meekness. We've talked about this before, that combination of boldness and meekness, which can only be generated by the divine light of God within us, his presence, his power. And think about it. He's standing before this stately, and this self-impressed, this powerful, august body, the council, the Areopagus, certainly the most respected and wise men of Athens and powerful men and the seat of wisdom, Athens, uh, in the ancient world. This, and he's alone. Next we see that he is giving a response, as we've said. Why is he there? He didn't go there first. He, He didn't pursue, it appears he didn't pursue an audience with this council. He's there to defend the faith as a, as a response to them challenging, the philosophers challenging the gospel he'd been preaching. Paul preached the gospel in the marketplace to all who happened to be there. He evangelized the rich and the poor alike, and he apparently did not into, enter into significant <coughs> apologetic exchanges until he was challenged 
So apologetics is meant to cast down every thought set up against Christ. It is a form of intellectual and spiritual combat between God's people and those we evangelize. And we are not wise to initiate such, if you will, intellectual and spiritual violence unless Christ and his word are challenged and questioned. Because when when we enter into this, we have to understand what our goal is, that their worldview and their ideas would be utterly destroyed, thrown down completely. And, And you know that this can lead to very serious friction in relationships. Not because we're trying to create it, but just because that's what can happen. Sinners don't like to let go of their sin. He was courageous as well. I want us to remember that this is the leading council of that city. And you have to see that he was under their direct scrutiny as he stood in their midst. Now, certainly they're curious, right? We know that they love new ideas from verse 21. But also, this council had the power to indict him for preaching strange new gods. They could have brought charges against him. This could be a pre-indictment, perhaps almost like a grand jury type of experience for Paul. Bonson says, Paul's appearance before the Areopagus Council is best understood as an informal exploratory hearing for the purpose of determining whether formal charges ought to be formulated and pressed against him. Eventually, none were. In the same city which had tried Anaxagoras, Protagoras and Socrates for introducing new deities, Paul was under examination for setting forth strange gods. So the history of this council, this situation, its shadow was present there for him. So there he is standing in their midst, surrounded by their power and beneath their gaze and their scrutiny, he stood alone, He did not shrink back from his apologetic duty. So going back to 1 Peter 3, and we see this exemplified here, apologetics by definition occurs within either an overt or partially veiled or totally veiled threat situation. Because if someone challenges you, you don't know for sure why they're challenging you and what their response is going to be when you move into what must be on your part an effort to utterly throw down their thinking. Utterly throw down the falsehoods that have taken them captive. Paul did not give way to fear. He understood the battle he was moving into and he did not give way to fear. In 1 Peter 3.13 again, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Next, we see Paul being gentle, being meek and humble and tender in his dealings with his fellow man. He says, men of Athens. And later, he's going to refer to Christ as the man appointed by God. Certainly, In this time of celebrating the incarnation of Christ, we see the necessity of the incarnation as a part of our knowledge and our preaching. So Paul addresses these deceived opponents of the gospel as men. He 
treats them as fellow persons. And by doing so, he subtly, subtly emphasizes the foundational common ground. The ideas have no common ground. The worldviews have no common ground. These kingdoms are led by two foes who shall never be at peace with one another, Jesus Christ and the devil. But humanity, fellow human beings, are caught up in this world. So we treat them as fellow human beings, demonstrating the principles of the gospel when we do so. We are all human. We are all made by God. We are all made in his image, and this will be a part of his apologetic later. We are all one another's neighbors, and we are called to engage with one another with love and respect out of love and respect for God himself. So our demeanor, the way in which we engage with others is so important. Next, we see Paul demonstrating that God had been set apart in his heart. We've talked about this before. It's the love of Christ that compels Paul. How could Paul be courageous in this situation, brothers and sisters, standing alone before this august and powerful council and not give way to fear? You know, it's easy to just read a story. You know, we have to remember Peter ran away, right? And I'm sure if we were honest, we'd have to admit that maybe, maybe you would have run away. You know, maybe, maybe your spirit would have never even been provoked to preach in the first place. In addition, how could Paul remain gentle and courteous towards these men, especially given the inevitably threatening setting? You know how it is when you have fear inside and, and it can come out as kind of a, a threatening res- re- response or an intimidating response or something less than courteous, something less than gentle, something not in the category of loving. So his fear has been set aside so that he is both courageous, staying present, and so that he's gentle, not trusting in his own powers, not trusting in his own pushy or persuasive speech, but trusting in God. There's some scriptures to consider here. Again, from 1 Peter 3. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So the response to the threats is to sanctify the Lord in your hearts to continue sanctifying the Lord in your hearts. So we see, how does Paul do this? It's because his heart is filled with Christ and Christ's love and Christ's glory. It's the same thing that's been fueling Paul's behavior ever since chapter nine, when he first was awakened to the reality of the glory of Christ who died for him. Christ dwells powerfully within him moment by moment. First Corinthians five, he puts it this way. The love of Christ compels me because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It is Christ's suffering for him that grips his soul and his resurrected savior and king owns him and controls his life. And he's glad that he's glad about that. He puts it this way in 1 Timothy 1, 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And this is so beautifully on display here before this council. We are to always be ready. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3. And Paul demonstrates this to us. Before diving into his intellectual preparation and all of its razor-sharp, invincible logic and shining knowledge, again, let it step back and pause and deeply reflect upon his Christ-like character. The sword of God's word, when unsheathed by a Christ-like soul, will be brought forth very carefully and with specific purpose. What are those purposes? Against sin and darkness, against the unseen spiritual enemies who threaten humanity. And that's where he says he's bringing it forth. He's aware that they're being threatened. Remember, he calls them men of Athens. These are our neighbors made in God's image. And when we bring forth God's word in conversation with them, it is directed towards their sin. In addition, we wield God's word for his glory. For his glory. So we're going against their sin and we're doing it for the glory of his name. What would be the other options? Well, we can use God's word sinfully. We can speak truth with sinful motives so that we're using the word against other individuals made in God's image to show them that they are wrong and to prove that we are right for our own pride, to tear them down. In addition, we can do this to build up our own pride. And so may God deliver us from this. And may we have his heart uh, in our relationships um, with everyone that we meet. On earth, goodwill towards men. Uh, Do we have Christ's heart of goodwill towards men? Now, after he does this, demonstrating these qualities, these Christ-like qualities, he defines the antithesis. He brings out the reality of the situation He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So we see, first of all, that Paul had done a deliberate study of the worldview of darkness there in Athens. He says, I perceive that in all things he's been looking. He's been looking at a lot of things. He says, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. So he's walked about the city. He's been looking at the city. He's read some of their poets, as we will see later. So before Paul began his evangelistic and his apologetic efforts, yes, he was spiritually prepared, but he was also mentally prepared, intellectually prepared, He had studied the beliefs and practices of the Athenian culture. He did not launch into evangelism or apologetics without first understanding a bit about this particular culture of unbelief. So we can be hasty in apologetics by even starting to be apologists before we're challenged. 
We can also be hasty in responding to the challenge from a position of ignorance. Sometimes when we're challenged, we might want to say, well, can you give me some time? Or, Or ask some questions. Ask the individual to teach you a bit about their worldview. Ask the important questions. So in order to define and push the antithesis between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom and to do so accurately without setting up straw men about this particular expression of darkness, we must first have a basic understanding of how darkness is expressing itself in that particular culture that this particular individual is experiencing. We need to individualize this for them. And then we express it to that individual. You see, general statements, yes, They're good, but they must lead to specific examples of cultural darkness in order to help this questioner connect themselves into the very culture of darkness that you are moving to throw down. So in other words, this keeps it from being purely academic. It makes it real for them, okay? We look for ethical things, real things they're doing that they're engaged in, like Paul does, worshiping idols, False beliefs, practices that surround them. Paul goes on, and before their eyes, he defines their worldview for them. First of all, he says they're very religious. Now, this word here kind of borders on the idea of being superstitious. Yet, in some settings, it can almost be a compliment because it might mean pious or, or devout in your paganism. But this ambivalence in the word, um, Bonson says, probably would have stoked their curiosity, would have gotten the philosophers saying, okay, what's he, which way is he going with this? What is he, what is he, he's going to clarify this for us. But in either case, it goes to what we've already said, that, that he observes that they embrace a number of presuppositions, a number of faith items, a number of beliefs that cannot be proven. Next. He defines their worldview as idolatrous without directly saying it. He says objects of worship. So he first gently refers to their idolatry by a descriptive phrase, leaving off now calling it sin. But obviously later, his call to repentance is going to reference back to this. And it will at that point in time blossom before the repentant that they are involved in idolatry. This worldview is a worldview of ignorance. He says these two phrases. He sees the inscription to the unknown God. And he says, you worship without knowing. So he references their ignorance, but similarly, he defines the darkness of their worldview, but without yet calling it sin. At this point in time, he's defining the reality and he's going to get to the fact that this is sin when he calls for repentance. He implies to them that they are humanistic. He's pointing to, the, to their use of their own wits and their observational powers to define reality. He speaks of things that they have discovered through their own wits and their own observational powers. They are ignorant precisely because they rely upon self rather than upon God's revelation. They believed that this unknown God must remain unknown and that he, he was, it was impenetrable ignorance is what 
Bonson calls it. So they had bumped into this and they were living in the midst of their own wits and their own observational powers and they refused to consider the possibility of revelation. So the humanistic. Now, he proclaims God to them. And this is very important. He doesn't prove God to them. He doesn't try to prove God to them. He proclaims God to them. And this is very important for us as evangelists and apologists. We just, as ambassadors, declare the truth of what God has said in his word. God's kingdom at root is founded upon God's revelation. Whenever I'm engaging with young Christians, uh, new Christians, one of the first things that uh, I want to disciple them in is biblical thinking, uh, loving God with all of their mind. And the very first book that I take them to is the Canon of Scripture by Pastor Kaiser because everything in life must flow from the Word of God. The kingdom of God for us is founded upon the word of God, upon his revelation. We cannot know anything with confidence apart from God's word. And so first and foremost, the kingdom of God is a kingdom based on revelation. And we proclaim this revelation when we are evangelists and apologists. Now, his first description of the kingdom is by inference because it doesn't come first by human conclusions but instead by God's gracious revelation to us in his word, because what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming what he's been told. He's proclaiming the very word of God. And it means to announce, to to declare, to promulgate, to make known. The herald doesn't come into the town square and go into an argument with people. The herald comes in and announces the reality that the king has told him to announce. And that is who we are. Now, this would have surprised the philosophers entrenched in self-based attempts to define reality. Yes, they had their oracles in their temples. And yes, if they were convinced that that oracle came from one of the gods, then it would have the same revelatory quality. Yes, but even that whole system itself has first been defined by human observation and wits. And this approach by Paul would have attacked the one foundational commonality shared by all the philosophical schools of Athens, Stoics, Epicureans, and any other kind you want to define. Everything they believed, their entire school of thought, was based upon human wits and human observation. And they had gotten pretty far, as we will see. They had learned from creation about God's divine nature to some extent. They had learned that. Paul references Their poets wrote it down. And yet they were unwilling to leave room for the possibility for revelation. They figured they had come to the pinnacle of knowledge. Now, after defining the two kingdoms, Paul then goes on in this next section to lay out the irreconcilable, infinite differences between these two kingdoms. Listen to how he puts it. And he just goes right into it. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, 
so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So here we see Paul showing how the biblical apologist not only defines the contrast between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, but then also goes on to expand these irreconcilable differences. Wise apologists do not give way to the urge to ease the tension between darkness and light. Look, when you're having these conversations with people, they will begin to squirm at this point in time. This is when you will begin to sense that perhaps they are insulted, feeling insulted. Can any two things be more different than darkness and light? And this is what we're called to reveal to them through our biblical apologetic. And it's going to be uncomfortable. You have to have courage to continue. And your gentleness of speech will become even more important during this phase of the conversation. As we define the darkness-light dichotomy, we will sense the squirming and the dis-ease of our listeners who are questioning the word of Christ. These unbelievers. Now, I do want to say just as a quick tangent, this also happens as we, as we exhort and rebuke one another. Right? So we, we, you know, we, we've all got our sin that we deal with as well. And as we're being sanctified together, you know, we, we've seen this even in our own lives as believers in the lives of other believers. But it's particularly noticeable and powerful in those who are unbelievers and who are without new life. But what will we do? Well, it took courage to evangelize. It took courage to initiate the apologetic encounter. And it takes courage to sustain and continue and finish and call for repentance, the ultimate act of courage. We have to have courage. So by God's grace, may we press forward in courage like Paul did, showing them that their discomfort is just the beginning. <laughs> this is nothing. That their worldview is infinitely ir- irrational and dark in contrast to God's kingdom of light and reason. We want this initial squirming and dis-ease by God's grace to eventually lead to a look of shock and jaw-dropping astonishment at the level of deception that has captured their own souls and that they would weep and say, praise be to God that I have been delivered. This is where we're going. So Paul defines the kingdom of God. As you can see in your notes, I don't put all the scriptures in there, but this is where he alludes to so many different scriptures. First of all, he tells them God is the creator of all things. What does this mean in their worldview? Well, he's distinct from creation, so it destroys pantheism. And he is the one true God, the almighty God, the creator God, so it destroys polytheism. So as he is infinite over all things, he has infinite majesty, he's distinct from creation, there's no other like him. So immediately they would have been shocked and probably brought to their mind the idea of the unknown God. Next, this creator God is Lord of heaven and earth. So it's not a pantheon of competing gods. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And it's not an impersonal force infused into all things like the pantheists would believe. He is Lord. He, he, he is a person. He is Lord. God, the creator, is a person, and he is Lord. 
of heaven and earth, the seen and the unseen. Next, he tells them that only this God and no other is self-existent. He is the only being who needs nothing and who needs no one by saying he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Again, you see Paul pushing the antithesis between what they believe and the truth. And we see that creation details matter. He, it's, it's beautiful, powerful uh, power of suggestion. He says, made from one blood. Made from one blood. Brothers and sisters, Genesis chapter 1 matters for every evangelist and every apologist. It is important to them that they understand that their view is false. That there is a common need for all of humanity. This is a uniting message because as we will see, their message creates subhuman nationalities, subhuman ethnic ideas. Next, he brings them into the concept of God's providence. He is pointing out to them that fate, random, unpredictable fate, which gives you no comfort, is false. He takes them into that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over all nations, not just in the generals, but down to the very detail of where the landmarks are placed. Down to the placement of land boundaries, according to his plan, that humanity, and for a reason, history has a purpose made by God that they should seek him and be brought out of darkness. God's purpose in providential history is that they should seek him and be brought out of darkness. In addition, he speaks to them of God's invincible sovereignty. Pre-appointed is the word that he uses. And this should bring great comfort. As opposed to the misery and despair of their worldviews. We see also that God deals not only with individuals, but also with nations, just like we saw in Christian Instruction Hour this morning. We also see the kindness of God that he set up a world where the blind rebels who are his enemies can grope for him. They can grope for him. It's a kindness that in their lostness, they can still grope for him. So the creator next and sovereign over history, the infinitely majestic and glorious God is near. That's the next thing he brings into their mind. This is not pantheism. This is not polytheism. And that's always the problem in philosophy is trying to work this transcendence and this eminence out. This majestic and, and yet nearness. How does this work? The pantheists try to solve it by making God into just a force throughout the world. You want to know about this? Just watch Star Wars. God is infinitely transcendent and yet simultaneously simultaneously near. It says, not far from us, not far from each one of us. And finally, he tells them that your breath, your life, your being, everything that you have, your very existence is in and from him. And your belief system doesn't change that. It is the reality for all who live and breathe. And this is in contrast to polytheism and pantheism, and it provides great comfort. So this is a beautiful kingdom, a wondrous God. 
He also describes the kingdom of Satan to them. They have a pantheon of gods that dwell in temples made by human hands. They believe in in gods that are weak and limited and controllable. They have a pantheon of gods who who are worshipped with men's hands. And and as you you do, do this, you can sense just the ridiculous nature of it beginning to appear before your eyes. It's laughable. And it's also implied that their beliefs are divisive because they treat people of different cultures as subhuman. It's implied that they have embraced this random, unpredictable, and capricious set of gods or capricious force that is guiding history. And it's implied that therefore no outcome is ever certain. There's no comfort in this life. There's no concept that all things work to the good. And it's also implied that there's an overfocus in the worldview on the individual, uh, ignoring national considerations and the cultural ramifications of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that their kingdom that they dwell in is filled up with the blind who are bound up in the darkness of self-authority and autonomy. And, And look at how kindly he does it. These are the things that he's saying to them about the world in which they dwell. They can give no explanation for human existence, for how humanity came into existence, and therefore they just have misery and isolation, and they're a hopeless bunch. Grasping at straws to find hope. And the contrast is laid out, exposing the ridiculous nature of the kingdom of Satan. And so as we're doing this in our apologetic conversations, as we're drawing this contrast, the smiles come, the chuckling comes, because it's... It becomes laughable to think that someone would want to live in that kingdom. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. Would he dwell in structures built by mere men? He's the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. Does he need the service and the worship of mere men? Can it be that some human beings should be treated as less valuable than others? Can it be that there's no single uniting purpose for the course of history? The best that they can do is to grope for God in the darkness of their autonomy. It's a sad existence. And they are all alone in the universe with no explanation for their very existence or the reason they're even curious about this conversation in the first place. So when we move into these conversations, again, you see Paul, the way he's working to throw down this worldview is to expand, to push the antithesis doing the best he can to show the difference between darkness and light. Also see here that he uses universal truths expressed by the pagan poets. Now, some classical apologists will argue that therefore we're supposed to find common ground and start from there and argue forth from their literature, uh, but that is not what Paul is doing. Paul is pointing to their literature to bring forth the reality of biblical principles. To, to, as a demonstration of biblical principles that he's already referenced. So he's not giving up the starting place. And some classical apologists will argue in some regards in a way that sounds like giving up the revelatory starting spot for all evangelistic and apologetic work. In him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. About this, Bonson says, Paul supports this point before the Areopagus by showing that even pantheistic Stoics are aware of and obliquely express God's nearness and man's dependence upon him 
Epimenides, the Cretan, is quoted from a quatrain and an address to Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. Bonson goes on and says, Paul's second quotation is introduced with the words, as certain of your own poets have said. His use here of the plural is further evidence of his educated familiarity with Greek thought. For as a matter of fact, the statement which is quoted can be found in more than one writer. Paul quotes his fellow Cilician, Aratus, as saying, for we are also his offspring from the poem on natural phenomenon, which is also echoed in Cleanthes' hymn to Zeus. Again, we see Paul's knowledge of this system. Paul could agree to the formal statement that we are God's offspring. Now, you know this is often misused by people. Paul uh, Bonson saying, however, he would certainly have said by way of qualification what the Stoics did not say, namely that we are children of God merely in a natural sense and not in a supernatural sense. All of those who are Adam's offspring forfeited their child father connection with God and brought themselves into judge and judged connection with God. And yet still are his offspring made in his image. So by the end of this brief argument, Paul has dramatically expanded the contrast between the Athenian worldview and the biblical worldview, showing the infinite superiority of God's kingdom over and against their dark kingdom and revealing the irrational, sometimes you might say laughable, sad and harmful outcomes of their beliefs. And we're going to see that there are some there that God granted faith to see this. Two, come with him by name and leave, leave all this behind. They realize their minds have been overthrown by this system. Paul, in gentleness and kindness in this phase of his speech, expands the antithesis to show the glory of God and his kingdom alongside the irredeemably self-contradictory and futile world of the devil. Brothers and sisters, Paul does not shrink back. And may that, may that be the same for us as well. So what do you do next? It's time to call for repentance. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So having established the vast chasm between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, Paul now moves into the call for repentance. The kingdom of darkness must be totally and immediately rejected. So that's important. Any call to repentance needs to have a time component to it. And God must become all in all. That is the nature of repentance. So we see his first correction, which is always the first step in repentance, is to reject false man-made notions of God's nature. This is a rational conclusion based upon the premise that we humans are made by God in God's image. We're the offspring of God. So what we see here that God's nature is, what can we learn? Just from creation, just from general revelation, we can learn that God is alive and personal since we are living and personal. His nature is somehow similar to ours since we are made by him in his image as his offspring, right? He's not gold, he's not silver, he's not stone, he's not wood, he's not something made with human hands. He's a living person like we are because he made us, we're his offspring. What is he not like? Well, he's not like gold or silver or stone. He's not shaped by art and man's devising. He is not created by man's mind. They know by 
obvious observation that if you make a piece of art, that piece of art did not design the artist. That is nonsense. And he's, so he's pointing to general revelation to help them see. So repentance re- begins with rejecting autonomy and submitting to God's authoritative word. God's authoritative revelation. And the word of God is what brings forth confident clarity regarding what we learn from general revelation and creation. But Paul softens the correction. Now you look, this is really important because, you know, there's going to be this temptation to shrink back, right? That's when we sense that a time to say, okay, these are the times of ignorance. Okay? In the past. Things have changed. Okay, but there was a time of ignorance So the lost, even now, are partially victims of the devil and his lies. Until they hear the message, until they hear the gospel, they they too are victims of this ignorance. They're, they're They're without excuse. They are culpable in their ignorance. But they are also victims of the devil's the devil's lies and the deceptions of darkness. That's the true enemy. The devil. But resultant repentance is still required. Our softened correction does not cause us to shrink back from calling from repentance. There's no excuse that can eliminate the requirement to immediately admit wrong beliefs and wrongdoing. So when someone hears the gospel, if they do not immediately repent, they've added sin. They've added more sin into their lives. Any delay of repentance after hearing the gospel Hearing the commandments of God is, obedient, is disobedience in and of itself. Next, we see that the requirement for repentance is universal. It's not limited to just the people of God. It's not limited to just Americans or the West. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's for every human being anywhere in the cosmos. All men everywhere. And it is not optional. It's not like you get a choice whether you are commanded to repent or not. It's not true. Every single person is commanded by God to repent. And again, this points to the idea that there's really only two kingdoms to be in. And we don't want to get distracted by the other polarizations that are put forward in our world today, right? Men, women, rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican, you know, J6er, not J6er, MAGA, MAGA, whatever it might be. No. Do not get drawn into those distractions, brothers and sisters. I've said it already. There's a timing for repentance. The text says now. So we must present repentance as an immediate command from God. Nothing about repentance is is negotiable with God. The sinners who are in the devil's kingdom don't set the terms for even how the surrender takes place. Congress has called someone to come and testify and they're trying to set the terms of when and where they testify. That's an example. No. God says, repent now. So we call men to surrender to him according to his terms and if they squirm and try to make their own terms, we point out to them that they are disobeying him. This is total surrender. This is immediate surrender. There are no negotiation terms. They are called to total and complete fealty to Christ, the Savior and the King right now, as are we every single day. 
And this is supremely reasonable because once the infinite contrast has been defined, when darkness and light are on display, can there be any other reasonable next step other than to call for immediate and complete renunciation of darkness and immediate and complete and glad fealty to Christ? And then Paul goes on, as we should, to give the reasons for repentance. And he says this, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So God in his kindness to us warns us about the coming judgment and demonstrates the reality of deliverance through raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is where we point to show God's goodness, to show God's power to show deliverance from his justice. So the biblical apologist will always include the reality that God is not only the almighty and all sovereign creator by whom we remain alive, by whom we have our breath, but will also go on to show this self-same creator, self-existent one, the Lord of heaven and earth as the judge of the world, all men, and to define for them that there is a God-appointed future day that no one can change. It is his timeline. There is a moment appointed in the future that God has appointed on that day that judgment will come upon all men on that day. We proclaim this as a part of our evangelical and apologetical work. But God has not only appointed a day of judgment. The biblical apologist always includes the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead, which by necessity includes his atoning crucifixion. Paul goes to Corinth. He writes to them later. He says he's resolved to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified, right? But these things are, you can't talk about the crucifixion and not talk about the resurrection and vice versa. So by necessity, he's teaching them about the remission of sin, Uh, the washing of his people and the establishment of their forgiveness and their righteousness before him. When the terms of the covenant are met, they are completely forgiven. They're no longer his enemies. They are forgiven. They are washed clean. They are made his friends and made able in the resurrection to follow him and to be faithful to the initial vow of fealty that they make to him in the covenant. When you confess your sins to God for the first time and you repent and you come to Christ, your repentance is a vow before God that you are making to him to totally repudiate the world of sin and darkness and to utterly and completely love and follow him and his commandments. That is when you have been converted. When you go through that experience in your life. And yet, even as you make this promise, you will know you cannot do it. But he will help us. And Paul points to the resurrection. Now, this one who was resurrected, who Paul certainly spoke of his crucifixion, this kind one, this good one, this glorious one, this sinless one, Jesus Christ, whom Paul surely would have lifted up in his preaching, can deliver them from that day of judgment. Because God has appointed not only a day of judgment, pre-appointed day, it's coming, But he is appointed that this man, Christ, 
is the one who will judge. This crucified one, this resurrected one, this reigning one, he is the one who will be the judge. And we know this because God raised him from the dead. His resurrection from the dead stands as God's proclamation to the world of who Jesus Christ is. And brothers and sisters, this coming day of judgment, these Athenians can be delivered from by trusting in Christ. So repentance begins with the rejection of autonomy and the acceptance of God's word's ultimate authority. And then it goes on to believe God is who he says he is in his word. And then goes on to reject sin and darkness and embrace the crucified and resurrected Christ as both total savior and total sovereign. Is this, does this describe your conversion? Does this describe your understanding of what has happened in your life? You see, so often in our world, you, you've experienced this too. There's this truncated gospel. You've heard me talk about this. We have to be forgiven of our sins. Amen. Hallelujah. We rejoice, don't we? We, we give thanks every single week for the forgiveness of sins. And it is our truest treasure to be delivered from the wrath that we deserve. But Christ is also our king. He's also our Lord. And so we receive his commandments with gladness. This kingdom motif by no means should ever be seen as reducing the grace and the mercy of God. Our king is gracious and benevolent and merciful to us. He died for us. So there's a response to biblical apologetics. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The fullness of biblical evangelism apologetics, always focused and finally upon the resurrection like Paul did, calling for repentance, going through this like Paul did, will have, will have its effect. And we see here that some will mock and revile God's ambassador. We see that some will reject immediate repentance. You see them procrastinating. And that's just more of their rebellion. Maybe it's not quite as bad as the rebellion of mocking him, but it's just more rebellion. As the king, whose scars are yet visible above, comes to you a rebel who deserves to be destroyed and says, I've died for you. You no longer need to be under my just, judge, under my just judgment. Reject this false king you're following and come and, and worship me. Well, give me a minute, okay? Can, can we, I'll think about that a little bit. So those are the two responses of unbelief that we see. There were those who were silent and not mentioned. Perhaps they were just apathetic. You know, there's apathy as a response as well. Like, oh, okay, where's my cake? And we have a lot of that in today's world. But brothers and sisters, there are those who repent and follow Christ. Men and women, wise and foolish, unnamed. There are those who will come to Christ through your ambassadorial work in this world. You should expect this. Bonson says their minds could be changed only by challenging their whole way of thought with a completely different worldview of the gospel, calling them to renounce 
and the inherent foolishness of their own philosophical perspectives and to repent for their suppression of the truth about God. Such a complete mental revolution allowing for a well-grounded and philosophically defensible knowledge of the truth can be accomplished by the grace of God. And stepping back, I'll just say, you know, sometimes we want to minimize the nature of what it means to preach the gospel in order to maximize our chance of having success. We need to preach a gospel that can only be believed by the supernatural work of the of living God in someone's heart. Otherwise, it's no gospel. Going on with Bonson. So Luke informs us that as Paul left the Areopagus meeting, certain men clave unto him and believed. There's a note of triumph in Luke's observation that some within Paul's audience became believers as a result of his apologetic presentation. He mentions conspicuously that a member of the Areopagus council, Dionysius, became a Christian, as well as a woman who was well enough known to be mentioned by name, Damaris. These were but some converts among others. So may the Lord bless us, brothers and sisters, to be prepared, to be ready as evangelists and apologists, um, to be like Christ, to be humble, to be prayerful. So that's one first question for you to ask yourself is, are you prayerful? This is probably the clearest mark of, of that humility and Christ-like character being formed in you. And uh, may God bless, bless us to be a humble and prayer, prayerful people being made like Christ. That we may be gentle and meek in all of our engagements with, with everyone that we meet. And are you prepared intellectually as an apologist? Do you, has this been a learning experience for you? Stepping back and if you will, kind of having a cosmological renewal in your mind of understanding of the nature of the battle in which we are engaged. Uh, the reality of two kingdoms and how far apart they are. And when we speak to others that we're called to present this to them and to take every thought captive for Christ and to, by God's grace, be a part of helping them to have their eyes open to see that their minds have been thrown down like yours were, like, like mine was before Christ saved me unto um, complete and total repentance and a life of ongoing service and love to Christ. And are you hopeful, finally? Are you hopeful as you share the gospel? Are you hopeful as you have courage and move into apologetic conversations, particularly in the workplace uh, or in schools? Um, are, you, are you having courage to open your mouth as an evangelist and as an apologist? And as you do so, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that you may see some join you and follow Christ with you? You may see some leave the halls of the councils of quote unquote wisdom of this day and come to Christ and follow him and worship him. Wouldn't it be a great joy to have many such conversations, many such opportunities, and to see many souls come to Christ through our words, through our testimony, through our evangelism, through our apologetic efforts. May it be so. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we lift all of these desires and prayers to you, resting in Christ, acknowledging that we are weak, but you are strong. 
that we are fools, but you are wise. And we are ignorant, and you teach us. We ask, Father, that you would continue to pour out your Spirit upon us, and that Christ would dwell in us more and more by faith, and that we would be strengthened in love, and that you would bless us to participate in your great and glorious work of bringing in your elect. We ask all of this for your glory and for the salvation of many yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.